welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 8 to verse 17. Please stand for the reading. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I have received mercy because I have acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. picture, 
we're still talking about the Trinity. Specifically, this week, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. This morning, as I was driving here, I'm always listening. I have the radio or the internet on, and I listen to preachers. As I was driving here, there was a local radio station, local preacher, talking about the Holy Spirit. So, of course, you know I'm going to pay attention. And he said that there were several things that the Holy Spirit would like to do with you if you would just choose to cooperate with him. If you would just allow him his influence in your life, then he could have an effective influence in your life. You find nothing like that anywhere in the Bible, but it is a very common kind of teaching. I'm sure all of you have heard that before. Turn to John 3. Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and he's going to tell us one very important essential reality about the Holy Spirit especially when the question comes up, who has the authority here? Is the authority yours so that you implement the Holy Spirit in your life? Or is the authority, the power, the sovereignty belonging to that holy, powerful, creative spirit of God who is then in the enterprise of changing you And it's not up to you. Which way does Jesus fall on that argument? Well, let's find out. Starting in verse 1 of John 3, this is a conversation that Jesus is having with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Last week, we spent some time looking at Jesus praying to the Father and explaining to his apostles that he was going to ask the Father to send the parakletos, the one that comes alongside, the one who is our helper, our comforter, who actually works as an advocate for us before the Father. And once he described all these great attributes of the Holy Spirit, He then described the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And I emphasize the word cannot. Cannot receive, not just does not. They don't just choose not to receive him. They're incapable of receiving him. Here Jesus says that unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's not up to you. That's a cannot. You cannot do it. You will only enter the kingdom of God if you have indeed been born from above, which is what the Greek says there, that you are born anothen, that you are born again from above, from the power of God, rebirthing you, regenerating you, making you over again, which tells you something very, very important. It tells you that your first birth was not adequate. If you were just born of your mother, that's not enough to get you into the kingdom of God. To get to the kingdom of God, you have to be born again, reborn a second time, regenerated, remade. Okay, so this is a vital thing. You must be born again. You have to be born again if you're going to spend eternity with God. If you don't, you cannot. Okay, so then how do you get born again? Since we know that's a vital thing that you got to have in order to stand before God and not fry, then how do you get born again? Jesus is going to tell us how. 
Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Okay, so Nicodemus has completely lost the plot. He has no idea what Jesus is actually talking about. Now, remember, he's a teacher in Israel. He's a Pharisee. He's a leader among the people. And yet when Jesus tells him this spiritual absolute, this reality, this non-negotiable, you must be born again, Nicodemus thinks he's still talking physically. How's an old man going to be born again? Jesus corrects him in verse 5 and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you, you must Be born again. So Jesus is really driving this point home. You must be born a second time. It's not adequate to just be born of the flesh. All flesh can produce is flesh. But you also have to be born of the spirit. And that is the only way that you're going to have a spiritual regeneration, a spiritual reawakening And then you are going to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. If you don't have that, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. Don't marvel that I said to you, you need to be born from above. You need to be born from the spirit of God. Okay, good. Now Jesus has set us up. How do we get born of the spirit of God? Is it up to you like the radio preacher said? Does the spirit want to work in you, but he's waiting for you to cooperate, waiting for you to choose, to decide? Is it up to you or is it up to the sovereign God? Well, Jesus answers that question in verse 8. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. That is a reality on planet Earth. When you walk outside, it gets windy. And you don't control the wind. You don't know where the wind came from. You don't know where it began, and you don't know where it's headed. You just stand there for that moment and feel the wind blowing on you, but you have no control over the wind. Okay, why did Jesus choose to tell Nicodemus, who knows what wind is, why would he tell Nicodemus, You know, you don't have any control over the wind. You might hear it. You might see the effects of it. You might see the branches moving from it. But you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. Why did Jesus yank out that example? So that he could say the next thing. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, so he just used the example of you're not in control. You're not in control of the wind. You don't decide about the wind. You don't determine the wind. It's not up to you. Same thing with the Holy Spirit, Jesus said. So we have the authority of Jesus to say, you must be born again, and it's not up to you. You have to have this. It's a prerequisite. You don't enter the kingdom of God without it. you got to be born from above, and it's not up to you. Who has all the authority? Clearly God, clearly the Spirit, who is saving whoever it is that God determines to save. These are just inescapable realities everywhere that you look in the conversations within the New Testament about how people get saved, never, never once, not once, zip, nada, goose egg. You won't find it anywhere. Never is it left up to the individual human to decide to get saved. Because we're, what's that word? Depraved. 
because we're far too sinful to understand how sinful we are. We're far too depraved to understand our own depravity. And the one thing we've never done, according to Isaiah, who Paul quotes again in the book of Romans, there's no one who ever stirred himself up to go seek after God. That's just Bible. It's just Jesus who says, it's not up to you to get born again, but you got to be born again. And because of our depraved human state, there's no person who ever stirred himself up to go seek after God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. So nobody ever woke up one morning and said, you know what I need to do? I need to get me much more holy, and I need to go chase after God because I want to go to the kingdom of God. No, your depraved little dark heart never thought that. If you have had that reality in your life, if you have had that notion in your life, it's because the God of ages, the creator of all things, has determined that he is going to draw you to himself. The same way that fishermen would cast a net and then draw fish into the boat, that's the example that the Bible uses for God drawing his own people to himself because He gets all the authority. He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory because it's all about him. You know what church is for? You got up this morning. You got dressed. You got in the car. You came to church. You know what church is for? Praise God. (laughs) To praise God, to worship the God who created everything. That's our purpose here. Our purpose here is to worship God. God. We're not a political entity. We're not here to tell you who to vote for. We're not here to tell you how to be socially more acceptable. We're here for one reason. We're here to worship God. Why do we gather to worship God? Because he deserves to be worshiped. And if you think that God is waiting for you to make some decision, some determination, he's waiting for you to decide to allow him to do stuff, You don't have to worship that God because he's worshiping you. He's waiting for you to make him Lord and Savior. I don't need a God like that. I need a God who completely and utterly can save a wretch like me. Someone who has eternally loved me, who has determined from the beginning what he was going to do, and then included me in his grand design plan. That's a God I can get on my face in front of. And we ought to be on our face in front of that God. Because he has all the authority and all the power, and he's completely sovereign. And there's no less God than that found anywhere in the Bible. Go find one. Show it to me. Anywhere you find a God that's waiting on people to tell them what to do, it's a false God. It's something made of stone. It's something that people have to pick up and move. It's something that God mocks and says he can't even think. He can't even talk. The only God who actually is is the God who decided everything, determined everything, and is in the process of doing everything he decided to do, and all of it he's doing according to his own good pleasure. Good, I'm glad I got to there. Do you know why God saved you? Kenneth, why did God save you? I mean, I know you. Come on. Why did God God save you, Jewel? He saved you for his own good pleasure. Isn't that great? He didn't save you because of anything in you. He didn't look at you and say, oh, it wouldn't be heaven without this guy. No, instead, he saved you for his own good pleasure. And his greatest glory and greatest pleasure comes from saving great sinners. If you qualify in the category of great sinner, think of all the glory he gets for saving somebody like you. He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. He's not in the enterprise of glorifying you, and that's why he's not waiting around for you to decide to let him do things. Is that clear? Okay, now we can get to the morning message, but, you know, I I heard that on the radio and just felt like I needed to clarify a few things. I like this quote from Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem, in talking about the Holy Spirit, said, 
The work of the Holy Spirit is to make manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. The Holy Spirit of God, his job is to manifest, to make obvious the fact that God exists. Here, I'll put it this way. Is there anybody in this room who can say, uh, okay, I'm not perfect yet, but I'm not what I used to be? Most all of us would have to agree with that, that there's been some change in our character, in our nature, in our lives. We're not perfect, no, but we can definitely look back and say, I'm not what I used to be. Okay, why? Why? Why are you not what you used to be? Again, is that because you woke up one day and said, I need to get me holier? No. It's because the Holy Spirit of God took up residence in you and began the process of conforming you into the image of God's own Son. And in that process, you are being reminded constantly that God exists. Because this would not happen to you. These changes would not occur to you if the Holy Spirit was not a reality who actually did take up residence in us, who actually was holy, who did conform us, who did change us. And the fact that the Spirit of God is changing you is the proof positive that God exists. This morning, we're going to look at Paul saying, that same Holy Spirit being inside you is a down payment from God that guarantees all the rest of what God promised you. I mean, the Holy Spirit being in the world is the proof positive of the presence of God in the world, and especially, according to Wayne Grudem, especially within the church. So it's really not enough for us to say, well, I'm saved, and therefore I'm going to heaven And since I'm secure in knowing that I'm going to heaven, it doesn't matter how I live. I can just live like hell. I can be no different than the whole rest of the world. No, that's not the reality. The reality is the work of the Spirit is going to guide our lives here and now until we get to heaven. I have often referred to the Holy Spirit as a governor on our behavior. It is the Holy Spirit working in your conscience that helps you to understand the difference between what you used to be and what you are now and what you will be in the future. Because you have the, emphasize it again, Holy Spirit of God inside you. If you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you, then it's going to produce actual change of character, actual change of nature. If you want to turn to Galatians 5... We're going to be there for a few minutes, starting at verse 22. Paul tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. And what you're going to recognize is that most of the things that Paul says are the the fruit, the reaction, the upshot of having the Holy Spirit. Most of the things he's going to list are things that are not natural to human beings. It's things that when you look at the world, you don't see it much in the world. Instead, you see it in Christian people. You see it in the church. You see it in the body of Christ because the Holy Spirit of God is governing the behavior of those people who belong to God. Galatians 5, starting at verse 22 But the fruit or the result of the Spirit is, number one, love. I'm not talking about fleshly love here. I'm not talking about sexual love here. I'm not talking about affection for worldly things. Look, I love pizza, okay? That means nothing. It just means that I love pizza. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. The love that's being talked about here is the love that only God actually can demonstrate. It is a sacrificial love. It is an eternal, unchanging love. It is also a genuinely unconditional love. 
Now, all love that human beings are able to exhibit is conditional love. What I mean by that is we love our husbands, we love our wives. But there are things they can do that will hamper our love for them. Can I get a witness? Don't, you husbands and wives, don't look at each other. I just saw several people eye each other. Don't do that. It's a giveaway. I can see you. I'm right here. That's not the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about an everlasting, unchanging, unconditional, sacrificial love. And you won't find that in the world. The people of the world, the fleshly people, are all involved in me first. Whatever I got to do to take care of me, build up my treasure. I don't care about the rest of you as long as I end up on the top of the heap. That's the way the world works. But the fruit of the Spirit is sacrifice on behalf of someone else. The way I have described that kind of love before is it is doing for the person who is being loved what is in the best interest of the person being loved, even if the person being loved doesn't appreciate it may not even want it, may not be looking for it. And yet you do for them what is best for them. Okay, so whoever did that? Well, Jesus. He died for you even though you were his enemy at the time. You were sinful at the time. You weren't looking for him. You weren't trying to lift him up. But he died for you anyway Because this great sacrificial love that God demonstrated through killing his son on your behalf is then a character of yours as the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in you and gives you the ability to love in a way that you never knew before. This is the first fruit of the Spirit. The second is joy. Real, genuine joy. I'm not talking about happiness here. Happiness is dependent on what happens. Happenstance. These are all words with the same root. So your happiness is dependent on what happens. Sometimes things happen that aren't good, and you're not happy about it. But if you know God and you know he's in charge, then you can still have that internal sense of joy that no matter what happens in this lifetime or in this world, you are still secure in the hand of your everlasting, ever-loving father. That will produce joy in you despite what happens. But that's not the way the world works. The world is completely mitigated by what happens. And so the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. The third is peace, the kind of peace that Paul says passes understanding. The world doesn't get it. Here, I'll make it simple. Uh, The world seems pretty stupid right now, right? I think we'd all have to agree with that. The world is pretty stupid. Are you okay? Mm Mm-hmm. Where did you get that peace? Where did you get that sense of okay? You get it from God. Why are you the only person who knew that? (laughs) Yeah, you get it from the fact that God himself, through his spirit, is inhabiting you, which gives you a sense that everything is in order, that everything is okay, and that God on his throne is still in charge despite this chaotic world. Where did you get that peace? From the Holy Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Patience. God-type patience. Look, we're all together in this church body. And we're all different. We all have different personalities. And every once in a while, we might bump into one of us who kind of gets on our nerves. I'm not looking. I'm trying to not look. I'm going to look at the ceiling. Every once in a while, we bump into Christian people who are just kind of a lot of work. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so where did we get the patience 
the endurance, the long-suffering to put up with them. It's not the way the world works. If the world becomes impatient with you, they will cancel you. They'll cancel you just for saying something they don't like. They'll cut you off completely. But within the church, within the body of Christ, we have an endurance and a love and a sacrifice for each other and a patience for each other that results in kindness and goodness and faithfulness. Verse 23 says that another fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and self Control. Self-control means being able to control your mortal body so that you're not out in the streets rioting the way the world is. Anybody here burned down a city lately? No. Why? Self-control. Anybody here been thrown into jail lately because you pushed somebody onto the tracks in a subway? I just read about that the other day. How does somebody just randomly have that in their head and then do it? Because they have no self-control. Okay, so one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the reasons that you're in your right mind today, one of the reasons that you have confidence and peace today, one of the reasons that you can endure this chaotic world today is because you do have the Holy Spirit in you, and that Holy Spirit is producing fruit in you And that fruit is obvious and very different from the world and the way the world is and the way that the world thinks. And it ought to be. One of the great frustrations of my ministerial career, such as it is, is that I have seen over the course of time Christian people get together with worldly people And then you wait to find out who's going to have the greater influence. What you always see is the Christians compromising in order to be friends with the world. You virtually never see the world compromising its stand in order to be friends with the church. But by the Spirit of God, we ought to be so committed, so faithful, so determined that there's nothing in this world that can take us away from our belief in Jesus Christ or our open admission that our entire life is in his hands. We have no reason to compromise. We have no reason to step down to make the world more comfortable. After all, we have the sovereign of the universe on our side. And yet, for some reason, I've seen so many Christians through the years who seem embarrassed to publicly say, I'm Christian. I don't understand that. The fruit of the Spirit should be leading you to this kind of confidence, this kind of faithfulness, where no matter what the circumstances of life, you are willing to sacrifice in love for the other person, for their good, for their eternal well-being, even if that means they're not going to be friends with you anymore. Am I making any sense? Yes. Okay. Didn't mean to start chastising people. (laughs) Now, says verse 24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Okay, so passions and desires there is not just talking about the things we typically think of. It's talking about the desire to go out and riot, the desire to kill, to murder, the desire to enrich yourself off the back of other people. It's all the stuff that your flesh and your ego normally want, the way the world actually works. Jesus Christ crucified his own flesh on the cross. He even said, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to take it up again. So he completely, voluntarily crucified his own flesh as a sin sacrifice in order to save wretches like us. Our reaction through the Holy Spirit is to say, since Christ was willing to sacrifice to that degree for me, I'm willing to sacrifice to that degree for him. I'm willing to reckon my own fleshly wants and desires and anger and meanness 
and self-aggrandizing. I'm willing to sacrifice everything that is so fleshly. I'm willing to sacrifice that for love of Christ. Okay, so where would you get that kind of thinking, that kind of idea? By the Holy Spirit of God taking up residence in you, being the evidence of God in the world. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Because if we live by the Spirit... Okay, so this goes back to John 3 now. Jesus said, if you're going to be in the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. How are you born again? By the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, so then you are truly, genuinely living by the Spirit. It's the Spirit that gave you this new life. If you are then living by the Spirit, then you should also walk in step with the Spirit. You should be kind and gracious and gentle. You should be offended when your friends say ungodly, blasphemous things. You shouldn't just stand there and give tacit approval to the God-hating world. Instead, if you live by the Spirit, you should walk in step with the Spirit. And what does that look like? He's going to tell us in verse 26, let us not become those who with vain glory... That means an excess of ego, being overwhelmed with yourself. Let us not become those who with vain glory are challenging one another or envying one another. When you're challenging one another, you start fighting. When you envy one another, you go to war because you want what they've got. And by the Holy Spirit, we are instructed, don't be like that. Be sacrificial instead. Be helpful. Be kind. Be gentle to people. Have self-control. Be patient. Be joyful. You can wrap all that up in be loving. Be loving to one another. Turn to Ephesians 4 for a minute. Paul didn't just say that to the Galatians. He also said it to the Ephesians. He expanded on this idea that if you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you, it will change you and make you unlike the natural characteristics of the world. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And what does that look like, to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called? By the way, if there is a calling on your life with which you have been called, who called you? God. God himself. It wasn't you calling God. It wasn't you picking yourself up. Instead, God put a call on your life. Therefore, walk worthy of that calling with which you have been called. This is what it would look like. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to do this, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the spirit. What does that mean? It means all of us collectively, as different as we might be, as different as our personalities might be, as different as our preferences are, as different as we might be, nevertheless, we all share the one and the same common Holy Spirit. And that is the unity of the spirit. Therefore, let's say I'm having trouble getting along with I just have to pick somebody. Pick me, pick me. <laughs> Did you just offer up your husband? Oh, I see. I thought you offered up your husband like a sacrificial lamb. Okay. Well, good. Then I'm going to pick you. So let's say Elizabeth and I are having a disagreement. No, that could never happen. 
we're really at odds with each other. We don't want to be in the same room with each other. We're really having trouble with each other. Okay, how are we going to reunite with each other in love, in patience, in kindness with each other? How are we going to keep the bond of peace between the two of us? We can't do it after our flesh. We're just both too bound up with what we want and our desires and our outcomes. How are we going to find unity with each other? Paul says, through the Spirit. Be diligent to keep the unity of that Spirit in the bond of peace. Which means Elizabeth and I ought to, for the sake of the unity of the church body, For the sake of the Holy Spirit that we both share, we ought to be willing to put down our arms, to stop our fight, and to say, you know what's more important here than what I want? It's what you want. And as soon as we do that, we're going to be at peace again. But the world doesn't act like that, I keep stressing. That's not the way your flesh acts. Your flesh wants to do me first, I get everything I'm okay, you're so-so. Just get away from me. I'll take care of me. But by the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, we can be diligent. That means put work in. Put in the work that is required in order to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why are we called to keep that bond of peace? Because of the unity of the Spirit? Because there is only one Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that one Holy Spirit is in me and maybe Elizabeth. (laughs) No. That's because she volunteered. That'll teach her. (laughs) There is one body. There is one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. If you were called by God to himself, the hope that you have is that you're going to be eternally saved, that you're going to be in the presence of God through all eternity, where there is joy eternal, where God himself is going to wipe away every tear, where there's no more sickness, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. Okay, that's what I'm hoping for. That's what you're also hoping for. That's what you're looking forward to. Therefore, we all have this one spirit. That means that we have one hope of our mutual calling. We have so much in common that we really ought to be able to overlook the things that are different about us because the things that we have in common are the eternal things. There is one body There is one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, that's Jesus Christ. There's only one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. That sounds pretty comprehensive. The one God who is over everything, the sovereign who is in control of all things, and he is also through all. There's nowhere you can go where he is not, and he is in all. That Spirit of God, that Holy Spirit of God, as I mentioned before, brings peace to us, brings a contentment to us. I love the Hebrew word shalom. Anybody who spent any time studying the Hebrew language knows that shalom means so much more than just not at war, what we think of as peace. The word shalom means everything is right because everything is in an ordered harmony. In other words, all things work together for good to those who love God who are the called according to his purpose. When Paul said that, I think he was explaining this concept of peace that comes from God, where you can be confident, even in this insane world, you can be confident that everything is working out exactly the way God on his throne wants it to work out. The world will say to you, where is your God? And the answer, according to King David, is, 
Our God is in the heavens, and he's doing whatever pleases him. That means that whatever's happening right now is happening because this is what pleases him right now, because he is driving the world inexorably toward the outcome that he announced before the beginning of everything. And if you're in the hands of that kind of sovereign God, if you're in the hands of somebody who has that kind of control, you're okay. Which is why I love the phrase, if God be for us, who can be against us? I mean, think about everything that God already has done for us and what he's going to do for us and that he's already given us the down payment of the Spirit to guarantee that he's going to do all the rest of it for us. I mean, that's a God who not only can I worship, but that's a God that I can trust. That's a God who actually has my back. Continuing in Ephesians 1 for just a moment, if you look down to verse 13, I've said this a couple times now, that the Spirit is God's down payment. It's his guarantee. Now Paul's going to say that. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 13, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge, that word can be translated as an earnest of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pick that apart for just a minute. Having heard the message of truth, which he then says is the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of your salvation is only through the finished work of Christ. That is the only truth. And having heard that, if you have believed that, it is because the Spirit of God sealed you. Now, when Paul said that, he was using a word that Middle Eastern kings, nobles, the high and the mighty would understand. That when they sent letters or when they would send decrees, when they would make laws, they would seal it. They would put wax on it. And each of them had a particular signet ring, a ring that had a mark or a stamp that was peculiar to them. And this is the way that people would know that a particular decree came from a particular leader or king, is that it would have his seal on it, because he would melt the wax and push his ring down into the wax until it made his seal. That's the word Paul just used to say the Holy Spirit seals us into God. So God in his authority has put his Holy Spirit on you, which is a seal that you belong to him, that you are his. In him, you also, having heard that message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed into him by the Holy Spirit of promise. When you receive the Holy Spirit of promise, that's not a spirit that comes, hangs out for the weekend, and then leaves. It is a permanent seal demonstrating that you belong to an eternal God. He sent his spirit to you for that purpose. But then Paul goes on and says, that spirit of promise deposited in you is given as a pledge of the whole rest of our inheritance. Has anybody in this building ever bought a house? I'm guessing most of you have. When you buy a house, you put down some money. And what's that money called? It, it's, earnest. it's earnest money, yeah, yeah. And the reason for the earnest money is it's a way of showing the people who own the home that you're serious about buying it. You're not giving them all the money at that point. But you're saying, I'm going to get you the rest of the money. And to guarantee that I'm going to get you the rest of the money, I'm going to give you this earnest because I really intend to buy this house. Same idea here. When God put his Holy Spirit in you, that was his earnest, his down payment 
that he is guaranteeing to you that he is going to do all the rest of the stuff that the Bible promised you. If you ever find yourself worrying about your eternity, if you find yourself worrying about whether you're good enough, if you're anything like me, you worry about that on a regular basis because you think, I'm supposed to be a Christian. How could I have just had that thought? The guarantee that God is not going to give up on you, the guarantee that he is going to be faithful to you, the guarantee that you are going to end up in his presence forever is that he did give you the Holy Spirit. He sealed you in Christ by that Holy Spirit, and that is the down payment of everything else that Paul calls your inheritance. You haven't gotten your whole inheritance yet. But that's coming, and it's guaranteed to you by the fact that God gave you his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. God's own possession is us, his church, his elect, the people that Christ died for. So there is a view toward the complete redemption of all his people, and that view of that utter redemption is guaranteed by the fact that he gave his Holy Spirit to those particular people, sealing them for all time and eternity. That's Paul's thinking on the subject. So suddenly this Holy Spirit becomes vital in the process of not only saving us because we have to be born again, but then governing us as we walk through this crazy world and then giving us the fruit of the Spirit so that we can endure in this world and in this church so that we can be peaceful, kind, loving, joyous people. But then it is also the guarantee that we are going to end up in God's presence and that he is going to welcome us there because he wrote our names down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world and then sealed us with his Holy Spirit so that when we appear before him, we have already been completely redeemed through the finished work of Christ. What a happy day that's going to be. Amen. I can't wait for that culmination. How do I know it's coming? Because I have the down payment already. I probably ought to just stop there. And yet I'm not going to. <laughs> Second Corinthians 1.21, you don't have to turn there. But Paul says the same thing to the Corinthian church. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts, as a pledge, as a down payment. 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 1. For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, he's not talking about a physical house, he's talking about your body. When it's time for you to die, when it's time for you to shuffle off this mortal coil, when this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands. He's going to give us that new body, that resurrected body. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, we groan. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, that new body. Inasmuch as we... Once we've put it on, we'll not be found unclothed or naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, this flesh, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Great phraseology. So that our mortal bodies, our mortal dying, decaying flesh is going to be swallowed up with this new body of eternal flesh, swallowed up in life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose of gathering us 
of putting a new body, of redeeming us from our old corrupt flesh. The very one who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us his spirit as a pledge. So that means all that other stuff I was reading about the new body, all that stuff I was reading about the new eternal resurrected body, that's hard for us to imagine. When's that going to happen? And I'm sure looking forward to it. We know it's going to happen. We're guaranteed it's going to happen because God, who determined he was going to do that, has already given us his Holy Spirit as a down payment, demonstrating that he's going to do everything else. Isn't that great? The Holy Spirit purifies us because he is a holy spirit. He reveals to us because he teaches us and he guides us. He unifies us so that we would endeavor to keep that unity of the spirit. And he gives evidence of God's presence. The fact that he exists demonstrates that God exists. He leads us into the truth by reminding us of the teaching and the life of Christ. And that's what he has always done. Sometimes the spirit, when I say the spirit, I don't want you to just think of the spirit as an it, as an entity out there somewhere. The Bible repeatedly refers to the Holy Spirit as a he, as a person, as someone who has personality, and we will dig deeper into that in the weeks to come. But let's finish this morning by looking at John 16. We just recently looked at this at men's group. John 16 is not only going to tell us more about the Holy Spirit and what the function and purpose of the Holy Spirit is, but it's also a good way to introduce us to this idea of the Trinity. Starting at verse 12, John 16, verse 12, Jesus, speaking to his apostles, says to them, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he will take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. All three members of the Trinity are in that verse. Everything that the Father has, which would be everything, also belongs to Christ. And therefore, Christ said to his apostles that he, the Holy Spirit, takes what is mine, which is also the Father's, and that's what he's going to disclose to you. I don't want to get too deep into this, but let's see if I can just run through it quickly and get you out of here in time. Am I boring anybody yet? No. Okay. God who created everything, God who invented everything, everything that exists, exists because this was part of God's plan that it would exist. Without him, nothing was made that was made. He made everything. He made it by himself, for himself, for his own glory. That means one of the things that he created was language. He created language so that he could communicate with his creatures. Some of his creatures, animals, have basic language, perfunctory language. A dog will bark to let you know a stranger's coming, or birds will chirp at each other to give them a warning when there's danger afoot. So there's very fundamental language, but then among human beings, he gave us a complex language that includes logic and, and structure to it so that we could convey ideas one to another and so that he could convey his ideas to us. 
After the fall, language became corrupted, and so you find people who use all kinds of evil language and destructive language and foul language and blasphemous language because language, like everything else in the human sphere, has been corrupted, which means we corrupt people need to hear the language of God. We need to hear what God thinks so that we can think God's thoughts after him. But we, being corrupted, having corrupt language, are not going to comprehend the words of God. Most of the world does not comprehend the word of God. They have no capability to understand the word of God. Therefore, when they open the Bible and read it, they might see some historical veracity to it. They might see some logic or philosophy in it, but they're not going to understand the voice of God. They're not going to hear the voice of God. How are you going to understand the language of God being a sinful person with corrupt language? You're only going to do that if the Holy Spirit of God is acting to disclose to you the things that belong to God. And the things that belong to God also belong to Jesus Christ. And he and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to indwell those people who he has chosen so that we can go to the word of God and we actually have some comprehension of it. And it actually speaks to us and it actually produces the fruit of the Spirit and the knowledge and the understanding that we collectively have as the church, as the body of Christ. Just the very fact that you will hear words every once in a while, I'll say something to you and it'll strike you it'll it'll move you you'll just kind of nod and yes that's true I get that that's right okay why are you able to agree with the word of God if he left you to yourself in your flesh you're never going to comprehend it but by the spirit of God one of the functions of the spirit of God is to disclose the truth of God To you, the same way that the Spirit of God disclosed and caused the apostles to remember the things of Christ and the things that Christ said so that they could write this book as the Spirit of God was both inspiring and occupying people who wrote this book that same Spirit of God is occupying you so that you can comprehend this book because it is the Spirit of God who determined it, who wrote it who is disclosing it, and the only reason you get it is because that same Spirit of God is working inside you without which you wouldn't make hiding or hair out of this book. Listen, when I hear people talk about God, when I listen to preachers on the radio or on the Internet, I'm listening for one thing primarily. I'm listening for the voice of God. I want to hear from God. And only by the Holy Spirit of God are you capable of doing that. If anything I said today or ever in my life ever motivated you or stirred you or made you have a greater understanding of God so that you want to worship him more, that's because the language of God is accomplishing the things of God. And that is all by the Spirit of God, which means he began it, he's doing it, And he's going to complete it. And it's just not about you. You are the very fortunate recipient of the astounding grace of God that he would allow a measly person like you to hear his voice. Don't ever take that for granted. There, I got it in. Next week, uh, more. I'm done.
We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.